Good morning, everyone. It's good to see you. Uh, many of us were at All Church Retreat uh, last week, and it was really fun. I especially enjoyed playing volleyball. Uh, there are some high school girls, uh, some of them are who are here, who are um, surprisingly good at volleyball, and it was a great time. Yeah, especially Sylvia. I think, and, and Rosalind. Ro the, you, both of you guys were really great. Um, Sylvia spent most of the time, what, on the sideline listening to Taylor Swift or whatever. <laughs> Anyway, let me open us up in a word of prayer, um, and then we'll get into our passage. Uh, dear Lord, uh, I pray very simply that out of your gracious love for us, you would reveal yourself to us um, as you are, not as we perceive you to be, and that your incredible love and effort and desire to save lost sinners like us uh, would make us people who have so much joy uh, knowing how much you rejoice in us as we repent. Um, so I pray that your power uh, would work and we would understand your gracious gentleness and compassion for us um, as we come to you today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. We're move over this way. Is that better? All right. So uh, we are um, we are going to be reading through a series of three parables in Luke chapter 15. So for some of you who are at retreat, in small groups, you might have read through uh, Luke chapter 15. Uh, my boys were too busy playing Foursquare and stuff, so we didn't read the passage. So this will be new to you, but some of you might have already gone over this. Um, that's totally okay. In fact, I think it's actually really great if there was one passage to uh, conclude our parable series with, I really think this is the passage. Because this passage is all about who God is, what he's like, um, God's heart towards us, and how that completely changes our perception of religion, of Christianity. Uh, so let me go ahead and read this passage. Uh, we're going to read Luke chapter 15, verses 1 through 10. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying, rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having 10 silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Uh, this is God's word. Uh, so what we're going to do over this week and then in two weeks, next week my brother-in-law is going to come and guest speak for us. Uh, but this week we're going to talk about verses 1 through 10, and next week we're going to talk about one of probably the most famous stories in scripture, which is 
the parable of the two lost brothers. And if you notice, uh, I'm going to, so I'm going to do a little bit of setup this week uh, for both sermons. But what I want to focus on this week is verses one and two. If you notice, Jesus is telling a parable, which is a parable I define as anyone. I've said this definition at least a dozen times over the parable series. A parable is a blank. Yeah, Daniel Die, what you got? You're, you're actually really close. Um, I like to be, I, I, would, I would change a few of the words. So um, a parable is, it's basically a metaphor, but I said a word picture or a story that communicates a spiritual truth, not, not a moral truth. In fact, a lot of the parables are not about like, do the right thing. A lot of the parables are actually about, make sure you know God rightly. And many of us perceive God to be different. So a parable is a word picture or story that illustrates a spiritual truth. And the final part is really important that has some sort of force on the audience. Okay. And so I hope you've seen how in each parable that we've talked about, uh, you have to put it in the context of the narrative of the gospels. And so in this narrative, what, what that means is Jesus tells the parables to illustrate a point and his point is pointed. So his point is targeted towards the people who he's talking to. And so what's really important when you're understanding the parables is you have to try to understand who Jesus's audience is, what misconception of God or how he's trying to persuade them differently. Um, and so you can understand what force he's trying to have. What's the situation here? This will be the key to unlocking the meaning of both of, of all three of these parables. There are two different groups in Jesus's audience. Who are the two different groups here? What do we think? Did you catch this? Verses one and two. There are two different groups. There is a group of tax collectors and sinners who draw near to him. So who are tax collectors and sinners? Uh, tax collectors were people who were in cahoots with Rome. So. Uh, this, this region was occupied by a foreign army, and these were the people who were like traitors. They're like Benedict Arnolds or whatever you want to call them. They're in cahoots with the occupying territory, and so they're traitorous. And not only that, they exploit and oppress good Jewish people by taking extra money from them. And so they often would become really rich through their exploitation of people. And so people would have hated them because they're traitors, but also hated them because they're tax collectors. So like, I mean, now we, we type it into TurboTax or whatever, but it never feels good, right? If you're an adult, like it never feels good when you're paying your taxes and you're like, oh my gosh. Well, sometimes it feels good if you get a refund, but whatever. Most, most of the time, um, but, uh, but it, would be, it would be way different if someone like had to knock on your door and it was like, this is how much you owe, pretend you owe like $3,000, and they're like, you owe $3,000 to Rome, but since I'm the tax collector, you owe $3,000 to me. You know, I gotta make a living. How would you feel about that person? You would hate them. Uh, and so they were ostracized by society. 
um, they were uh, they were just excluded in all sorts of different ways. You're, you're not inviting tax collectors to your parties. The second type of people were sinners. Now, when we think about sinners, we might have whatever view of sin that you have. These were people who were not just sinners in the sense that like they you know, oh, they told, like, a white lie, like, to their, whatever. They're like, like, oh, do you like my outfit today? And you're like, not really, but, oh, yeah, it looks great. No, it's, that's not, it's not that kind of sinner. These would have been people who were publicly, uh, publicly exposed. So there would have been scandal, and, or th- their reputation was that they, there was something that defined them as a sinner. And so for Jewish people, maybe they were uh, in prostitution, and so everyone would have known who they were and what they were about, and they would have labeled them as a sinner. Or if you, like, maybe they were like a corrupt politician or a criminal or whatever it might be. These are people everyone would have known were sinners. And so tax collectors and sinners, that's one audience that Jesus is talking to. The second audience is the Pharisees and the scribes. And so we, we've been kind of like, influenced by growing up in church or having some, you know, Christian school background or whatever it might be, when we see Pharisees and scribes, we typically think like the bad guys of the story. But if you were part of this culture, the prostitutes and sinners would have been the bad people, the immoral people, and the Pharisees and the scribes would have been like the Mother Teresas of the community. Or like the pastors or whatever. They would have been the super good, like, I'm not, I'm not saying I'm good. They would have been the really religious people. They would have been the people who were characterized by their philanthropy. Um, like they donated huge sums of money to the poor people to solve social problems, all of that stuff, right? And so what this audience that Jesus is telling uh, the parables to, he actually turns these categories on their heads and what we're going to see in the, in the next two weeks, in this week and next week, is Jesus speaks a different message to these two audiences. And so in this first message, I'm going to focus more on what Jesus is saying to the tax collectors and sinners about who God is. And then in the next message in two weeks, we're going to be focusing more on the Pharisees and the scribes who are grumbling at Jesus because what? This man receives sinners and eats with them. And so what that means, that little expression, what is their complaint about Jesus? Um, And this is really interesting for those of you who've grown up in American Christianity. Their complaint about Jesus is that Jesus welcomes sinners into his home and he associates with them and he identifies with them and he becomes part, they become part of his community. And that's the level of identification and welcome Jesus has with sinners. Um, And so he's actually saying when these people, these hyper moralist, uh, moralist religious people are looking at Jesus who's hanging out with these sinners, they grumble at him because he's not doing what a holy person does, right? He's not acting like God acts in their view of God. And so Jesus, what's in What's in his crosshairs is these two different groups, and the force that he has on these two different groups is completely different. Um, On one group, he tells this message, these parables, about a lost sheep and a lost coin, and these parables communicate something to the tax collectors and sinners. They also communicate something to the Pharisees and scribes. 
Um, but I would say he is encouraging and uplifting the tax collectors and sinners, and he is challenging and confronting and humbling the Pharisees and scribes. They think that they're religious, they think they're moral, and they understand who God is, but he is saying, actually, you've got God completely wrong. And so this is, okay, I feel very strongly about this. Uh, let me illustrate it in this way. Uh, there is a, there is like a professor, I was, I was reading this book, it was a collection of uh, sermons that were paying uh, tribute to a uh, uh, seminary professor. And the, one of the sermons told the story, so he's like a pastor, he's a professor, whatever he is. He told this story about having three kids, and he would do like his adult, he, he wait, okay, he would have his little like family worship sessions, right? where they would like read the Bible together or they would pray together, you know, really brief, maybe they sing some songs, whatever it might be. And he had three different kids. And so at some point during, uh, on different weeks, he, these are probably kids who are like, you know, below 10, so they're relatively young. He would take out, he had two boys, one girl, the girl's the youngest. He would take out one boy out from the session, maybe his wife is continuing singing songs or reading the Bible, and then he starts to ask them a question, which is, uh, what is the most important thing that I've taught you as a father? Or like, what's my most important piece of wisdom or advice for how to live your life? What's the most important thing about live, being a good person or living, or like what I've been communicating with you? Um, the first one said this. The first one said, um, always make sure that you try your best in, in everything that you do. And so he's like, okay, sure. So then the next week, he brings out his next son, and his next son is like, always keep the rules and do your best, you know? Always keep your rules, work hard, do your best. And then the third week, his daughter came out, and his daughter said to him, what's the, or, what, what's the most important thing I've communicated to you? And she said, the most important thing you communicated to me is that Jesus loves me. And so he said basically, oh no, I've raised two Pharisees and one Christian. Do you kind of see the point of this story? We typically think, when you think about church, it is very easy for you to think that our job is to raise you up to be moral people. People who try their best, who do the right thing, who keep the rules. And what I'm saying to you is that is absolutely wrong. In fact, if you think that Christianity and God is about doing the right thing um, in, in this way that he, in this way that, that moral people do, this is not what it's about. <laughs> this is not what it's about. And so what's really interesting is in the gospels, Jesus's parables and his teaching actually are constantly pointed against the religious people the people who keep all the rules, and he says, your view of God is wrong, and he's actually harsh and critical towards them. And what he says to them often is, you, you don't actually keep the rules. You think you keep the rules. And so that's, that's, another, that's another thing. But what church is about, what youth group is about. Now, and so, like, you know, I see this a lot in youth group where parents always want you to, like, you know, help your kid do better in school or, like, work hard or whatever, or, like, teach them how to have healthy relationships like with the members of the opposite 
say all that stuff, right? That's what parents care about. That's what they want us to inculcate their kids with. And it's not about that. The, the, uh, it's about Jesus and it's about God and understanding what God's heart is for you. And so this is the gospel. This is the encouragement for tax collectors and sinners. It's a challenge to moralistic people. Okay, it really is. And so how do you identify which group you typically uh, fit into? Um, I would say probably the vast majority of people who come to church regularly, um, it's far easier to identify yourself in the moralistic or legalistic camp. Um, And so most of the time, we should put ourselves in that category. Uh, But, okay, anyway. um, I got to get to what... I get to get, got to get to what I'm talking about, okay? The first thing we're going to see from this parable is we're going to see how we are sheep, okay? We are sheep or we are sheeple. I promised the youth group that we would talk about this. Um, the second thing we're going to see, and I want to focus more on these parts, is we're going to see who God is. Jesus is confronting people and shifting their perception of what God is like and who God welcomes and values, Um, And so we're going to see how Jesus seeks the lost. And then finally, we're going to see how there's rejoicing in heaven. So let's get into it. Um, Let me me give you some background on this parable. So the first parable, and I'm going to focus more on the sheep one. What's going on in this parable? Um, A shepherd has 100 sheep. And if you know anything about sheep, they stay together in the herd for the most part, right? So they all kind of like graze together. They flock together. They, when, when, they call, when people call you a sheeple on the internet, it just means that you can't think for yourself. You're like a sheep and you're kind of dumb. And when we, th- this is actually really interesting. When we think about sheep, what's the first thing that comes to mind? Often, I don't know if this is right, but you guys know the song like Mary Had a Little Lamb? Maybe, maybe this is the image that comes to your mind when Jesus is telling this parable, where it's like, oh, look at that fuzzy little sheep. It's so cute. It's so cute. Little, like a little, you know, like adorable, right? But what Jesus, actually, when you talk to shepherds, like when, when you start to learn about what it's like to be a shepherd, you realize that the main thing that Jesus is saying about, about sheep is sheep are really, really dumb. They're really foolish. They're really, like, they have no clue what's going on. And so, you know, there's this one, inter- there's this one video I saw on YouTube that I, I'll always remember. Um, there, so there's a guy, there's a big hole in the ground. And this guy starts to reach into the hole in the ground. And he's, like, dipping the entire top half of his body and his arms into this huge hole in the ground. And then he starts to pull, 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 pull. And you know what he pulls out? A sheep, because that dumb sheep just like fell into a hole in the ground and couldn't get out. And then right after that, he pulls it out. The sheep goes right back into the hole. (laughs) I, I, I don't know if I'm actually remembering that correctly. I could be like mixing two videos together, but it's an illustration of how dumb sheep are. And so, uh, when Jesus is comparing people to sheep, what he's saying is on our own, We are absolutely helpless. We are absolutely helpless and defenseless in the wild. Do you know what I mean? Uh, When when wild animals attack, what are sheep going to do? They got nothing. They got nothing. If a wolf attacks a flock of sheep, they got nothing. They just panic. 
They run away. Um, they get eaten. That's all they can do. The other thing, so sheep are helpless. The other thing is sheep are dumb. Um, they are so dependent on their shepherds to find food, to find water, to not fall off cliffs. I kid you not. Sheep are so dumb, they have no awareness of danger in their surroundings, and they are completely helpless. And so there's this passage that always gets me um, in the Gospels where Jesus looks at this crowd and he says, when he saw the crowd, he had compassion on them, for they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And so when Jesus looks at us, when Jesus looks at all of us, what does he see? He sees sheeple. He sees people who don't know how to live. He sees people who don't know what's good for us. And this is kind of the, uh, this is a more robust biblical view of sin. When we think about sin, it's often like rules. Break this rule, like, and, and they're often really like, don't swear, you know, swearing's bad. Don't say bad words, right? That's kind of our view of what sin is. But it's actually, sin is far deeper than that. Sin is basically saying, we are so foolish that we know, we often know the very things that we should do that are good for us. We know what's good in a relationship with someone, but we just can't help ourselves. And so you have examples of this where, you know, like, um, you're, you're like in a relationship with someone and you know it's not good to lose your temper and get super defensive when your spouse critiques you. But every time they say something, your emotions, your, your, you, start, you start like boiling on the inside. And then it just kept boiling. Christopher, do you know what boiling is? <laughs> boiling. You're boiling on the inside. And then it keeps on like you stewing on it. And it keeps on building up and building up. And then you explode, right? And so you start shouting at your spouse. You start shouting at your kids. And here's the thing, as you're doing that, or maybe when you come to your senses afterwards, you always say, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry, I didn't mean to do that. Or you say, how many times am I going to do this? I know this is a mistake, and I keep on making the same mistake. And so it's really easy to look at external behaviors and say, um, oh, sin is external behaviors, those are the ones that I don't do. But really what sin is, is we constantly are self-destructive. We are destructive in our relationships where the th we can't help ourselves. And so the, the Bible uses different metaphors, but a really good one is the metaphor of addiction, where even though you know something is harmful for you, you can't stop doing it. And so the Bible actually says you are a slave to sin, which means sin is your master Sin controls you, makes you do things that a part of you does not want to do. And as you get older, you would think, you know, like, oh, I'm a pastor. So you would think that my trajectory would be like, oh, I keep on getting better and better. And like, I'm super great and I don't sin anymore. The actual trajectory as you get older is sometimes you think you're really great. Like when you get married, for example, <laughs> sometimes you think like, oh, I'm a great husband. And then as things go on, you realize like, I'm really not that great of a husband. And then you find that you keep on getting into the same fights, and I keep on doing the same things out of my insecurity or anger or whatever it might be. And at some point I'm like, wow, I'm really messed up. 
And there are things in my life that I feel powerless to help. And that's what it means to be a sheep. I'm helpless. The Bible, the, the difference between moralism and Christianity is moralism says whenever you come, you go to a sin, like, oh, you struggle with an anger, what do you do? You try harder, you try smarter, you find the right techniques to fix that issue, right? But the problem is, even if you fix that issue, it doesn't change your motivation, it doesn't change your heart, and no matter how hard you try, the biblical worldview is that you will inevitably find yourself not doing the things you should do and doing the things you don't want to do. That's what a view of sin is. And if you look at world history, like G.K. Chesterton says, sin is the one doctrine that's empirically verifiable, right? Because when you look at history, in the, like the more advanced civilization gets, you know, back in the early 1900s, everyone was like really on progress. They're like, technological advancements, early 1900s, early 1900s. They're like, we are more advanced, we're more technically sound, there are all of these technological innovations, human culture is beautiful, you know, there's like uh, Wagner and like beautiful music, everyone's so educated, right? We're just gonna get better and better and better, and we're going to become more morally advanced, we're gonna be better as a civilization and humanity, and then what happened? World War I, World War II, nuclear bombs, Cold War. And so the more advanced the civilization does not necessarily mean the better the people. Human history is a story over and over again of people finding themselves stuck with the same issues and problems that have always plagued humans. We kill each other. We lie to each other. We exploit each other. This is what sin is. And the, what differentiates a moralist from a Christian is a moralist says, I can do it. If I work hard enough, I can be good on my own power. But then a Christian says, it is impossible for me to be good because I'm a slave to sin, I'm powerless, I'm helpless, I'm a sheep. I can't help myself. And so the first step to understanding what it means to be a Christian is to recognize that you are powerless and you desperately need a savior. You desperately need a shepherd. And so what Jesus is saying here through this parable is that you are sheep, okay? You are sheep in need of a shepherd. But if you look at the second thing Jesus says, in both of these parables, there is something that's lost, right? In both of these two parables, there is something precious that has been lost. In the first parable, there is a sheep that wanders away from the 99. In the second parable, there's a coin that a woman loses in her house. And so in both of these parables, there's something extraordinarily precious that's lost. And the direction of the parables, this is a sequence of three. And so it's kind of like telling the punchline to a joke, right? Where it's like, you know, there has to be three, right? So it's like, you know, I'm like explaining how jokes work, which is really, really great. Yeah, that, that makes it funny. No, the, when you're telling a parable, in the first one, there are 100 sheep, one gets lost. In the second one, there are 10 coins, one get lost. In the third one, there are two brothers, and we typically think one gets lost. But in, in fact, both get lost. But you can see how there's a progression, right? Where there is increasingly scarce thing uh, that gets lost, right? It goes from 100 to 1 to 10 to 1 to 1 to 2, or whatever it might be. Um, and so what Jesus is saying is, 
Uh, in both of these situations, uh, it feels so good when you find something. Uh, so there is there is something that happened. I, I don't remember when it was. Ash, do you remember when it was? It was probably like three or four months ago. Um, I We were going on a walk, and uh, when we came back from the walk, I felt in my pocket, and I couldn't find my smartphone. And yeah, you, you, you know what that's like, right? And so the first thing I did was I freaked out. I kind of panicked. And then I went outside, and I literally ran... I literally ran the pathway that we walked to see if I could find my smartphone. I didn't find it anywhere. I was looking really, really hard. And then I went back home and I'm like, you know what, maybe I missed it the first time. And then I ran out again and followed the same pathway to see if I could find my smartphone. Um, and then at, like, I was freaking out and I, I was actually, I think this was like a Friday or something and I, had to, I was preparing a sermon for Sunday. And so I was like really stressed because I just felt so weird, right? Like, you feel so weird when you don't have your phone on you, if, you, if you're, like, an adult or whatever. It's like, you keep on feeling your pockets. I, I looked everywhere in the house. And then at some point, you look at all the regular spots, and you're like, it's not there. So then you look at all the ridiculous spots. Like, you, you look in the freezer, like, did I put it in there by accident? <laughs> I'm serious, right? You guys know what I'm talking about. And then at some point, um, I'm like, whatever, I give up. So then the next morning, my wife is really smart, a lot more tech technologically savvy than me. And she's like, you dummy, why don't you just use the Find My Phone app, right? And so I, uh, I got my other smartphone, because <laughs> I had an old smartphone. And I used the Find My Phone app, and then it showed me where it was on the map, and it was on the walking route. So then I went over to the walking route. And what had happened was someone had clearly found it on the ground, and then put it on a retaining wall between two stores, basically. And so like the pathways here, the retaining wall is over here and it was just perched on top of the retaining wall. So someone had found it and they were really nice. They're like, I'm just gonna leave it here. Hopefully it'll come back and find it. But you, I couldn't find it because it wasn't on the ground, right? And it wasn't that easy to see. Um, and so do you know what I felt after I found my smartphone? Ah, <sighs> thank you, God. I, I was literally so thankful, I was so grateful. I was overjoyed because it was a relatively new smartphone and I just felt so much better. That's the feeling of these parables, right? Where a sheep is very valuable. And if you lose one sheep, that's, that's a lot of money. A coin, imagine if you lost somehow, like, okay, there is this other story that I remember. Um, I don't remember the exact numbers, but there is a guy who started investing in Bitcoin when it was in its infancy. And so he had accumulated, um, it could be billions of dollars of Bitcoin, or it could, maybe it was like 100 million. It was some enormous amount of money of Bitcoin on a hard drive, and then he had accidentally thrown away that hard drive. And so do you know what he did? First of all, he tried to cope with it, and he was like, I you know, it, it's okay, you know, like, I'm, I still have money, I'm, it's not that big of a deal to me, I'll be fine. But then he started looking through the entire garbage disposal site and combing through thousands of tons of trash to try to find that hard drive so he could get back his millions of dollars worth of Bitcoin. And so he had to, like, pay the, the garbage disposal people. So he basically is going through this treasure hunt to find this hard drive. 
And that's what it would have been like. You Imagine you lost 10% of your net worth somehow on a hard drive or whatever it might be. Back then, if you have coins, you don't keep a bunch of coins in your house. And coins are really valuable. So for her to lose a tenth of her coins, that's a really big deal. And so she, what does she do? She turns on a lamp, or she lights a lamp, which shows you maybe it was at nighttime or maybe it was even during the day. Um, she's so desperate to find that lost treasure. And so she turns on the light. She sweeps everywhere. She looks everywhere. And finally, she fi finds it. Now, what, what is the point and the force of this parable? When sinners and tax collectors come to Jesus, they perhaps think that God is a certain way. They think that when God looks at them and he sees them in their sin and powerlessness and being sheep, he says to them, you guys got to shape up before I accept you. You got to jump through these hoops and become morally upright before you can be accepted by me. And maybe if you do good enough, if you try hard enough, then you can come to me and I will accept you. But instead, in this parable, what is Jesus saying? He's saying to the tax collectors and sinners, when you get lost, I seek you. I go after you. And so there's this passage in Luke chapter 19, and this is a really beautiful passage that everyone should memorize. Um, it says, for the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. You get that? Jesus is confronting and challenging moralistic people's view of what it means to be a Christian because during this time, their religious systems would have um, seen sinners as people who would have defiled them. And so if, if there's a prostitute, um, I, think, I think this is correct. I think rabbis were actually not allowed to teach the Torah to prostitutes for fear that they would be contaminated by their sinfulness, which is pretty crazy, right? Jesus is the polar opposite of that. Um, and so that's, that's incredibly tragic. It's incredibly tragic that the word of God, the God who loves sinners, um, would not be taught to the very person who needs it, right? The problem with us is in our Christian circles, we, we, we often do this where the people who most need the grace of God, the people who are sinners, we, we look down on them, we exclude them, we think that the grace of, we want them to act good and moral before we bring the gospel to them. Like if you're good enough, you can come through the doors. You have to act a certain way, you have to dress a certain way before you come through the doors of CCIC South Valley. And then if you can sit down and listen to the sermons good enough and you do the right thing when you're singing and you don't have any weird, you know, like political, then, then you can come in and then you can, you know, get the grace of God, right? But what is, what is this saying about what God is like? Jesus is saying, God is like, Jesus is like, the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. What does that mean? When there is someone who is desperately in need of grace, when there's someone who is helpless and lost in their sin, God doesn't just wait for them to come to him. He goes after them. And so as a Christian, if, you, if, if, you, if you've been a Christian for any period of time and you understand the heart of God to seek and save the lost, this means that you become the type of person who goes out to pursue people. And you, you go out after sinners 
because you know that you too are a sinner in need of grace and you want to share this good savior that you found with everyone because he is so forgiving and gracious, right? And so this is what it means to do evangelism, right? Uh, one surefire way to know if you're more of a moralist or legalist um, or a Christian is if you're a legalist or a moralist, we're going to talk more about this uh, in a couple of weeks, but God feels like a hard master and it, the gospel is not really good news. The gospel is more like if you are a good enough person and you work hard enough as a kid, you have all the right Sunday school answers and you try really hard to be moral. That's what it means to be a Christian, to be accepted by God. There's no good news there. It feels like torture and agony and hard work. And the only good thing you get out of that is that you can feel morally superior to other people. That's the only thing you get. And for some people, that feels really good. But that's not what it means to be a Christian. To be a Christian is to say, I am lost and helpless, and I, need, I desperately need you, God. And the amazing news Jesus is confronting the Pharisees with is God is not like you think he is. God is not a moralist because God doesn't expect you to do it based on your own effort. The means of obeying God, which is extremely important, is the Holy Spirit, is to walk with God, and the Holy Spirit will regenerate you and grow the fruit of the Spirit. And that anger problem that I used earlier on in the example, over time, as you understand what God is like, that will shrivel up. Because the things that are leading you to be angry, when you see how patient God is with you, when you see how gracious and gentle God is, it starts to shrivel up that need you have to be right that makes you defensive and makes you respond in anger. It shrivels it up over time as you get to know your Savior. Let's look at the last thing that these parables have in common. The man finds the sheep, and I, I, love, um, I love verse 5 because it really paints a picture. When he has found the sheep, he lays it on his shoulders. That's a little detail that's actually really important because it shows you how dumb sheep are. Um, when a sheep is lost, it freaks out, and you can't just lead it back. You know, you can't just grab it and say, come with me, sheep. You have to, you have to bind its feet and throw it over your shoulders and carry it back to the herd. And so that's a really cool little, little detail. But he, once he finds the sheep and brings it home, he calls together his friends and neighbors and re says, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. And then here's the punchline. He says, Just so, so this is a metaphor, this is an analogy, just so there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. And in the next story, same thing happens. She finds it. She calls together her friends. Rejoice with me. They throw a party. They invite people. And they say, rejoice with me. I'm so overjoyed that I found my cell phone. I was looking for it for so long. I'm so happy that I found it. That's what it feels like to be a Christian. That's what it feels like. That, like, that, that's what it feels like. Um, rejoice with me, for I found the coin that I lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So Jesus, so uh, there are lost people. Jesus goes after them. And then the end result is that there is rejoicing in heaven. Now, there's something really particular going on here. When Jesus is claiming that there's rejoicing in heaven over a sinner repents, he is making a, a statement about what God is like. 
Because back then, they would have not wanted to be um, irreverent, and so they wouldn't say like Yahweh, like the name of God. And so there's a thing called the divine passive. And they basically uh, use euphemisms to express uh, the name of God. And so here, when Jesus says there is rejoicing in heaven, what is he saying about God? He's saying, you Pharisees are excluding the sinners and tax collectors. You Pharisees are acting like you're better than them, but you are out of touch with the heart of God. Because when these sinners and tax collectors come to Jesus for grace and forgiveness, God is overjoyed with them. He is delighted that these sinners and tax collectors have come to repent. And to repent means to turn away from what you were following before and turn towards God. And so some of you might be asking the question, which is, Daniel, what about obedience? What about all of that stuff? That's all really important. But that comes as a result of understanding the gospel, which is that you are forgiven regardless of what you do. And then out of the means of the Holy Spirit working in you and out of the, or sorry, out of the, uh, and out of the motivation of gratitude for what Jesus has done for you, that is the power by which you can obey God. God will change you so that you obey God out of the means of the Holy Spirit and out of the motivation of gratitude for him saving you and changing you. And so that's another huge difference between legalism, moralism. Moralism is always external control where you are trying to force people to do stuff. Christianity Uh, You obey out of gratitude, and you obey by the power of the Holy Spirit, where you say, God, I can't deal with my issues. I seriously can't. And I, Daniel, I can't deal with my issues apart from the power of God. But with God, he can help me. He can change me. He can grow me. The fruit of the Spirit in me means it is inevitable that I will be significantly changed and transformed by having a relationship with God. And that hope it happens over the course of your life, this incredible process um, called sanctification. And so what is God like? What is the heart of God, the heart of the shepherd? When God sees a lost sheep, he goes after that sheep. When God, as a father, sees a child who's struggling, does the, does the parent say, oh, well, you know, like you got to once, it, oh, you're not doing your homework, huh? Oh, well, I guess I'm not going to love you until you do that. No, absolutely not. The, the parent's heart breaks for their kid going through that problem. If they're depressed, if they're struggling, if they can't help themselves with something, if they have impulse control issues, the parent's heart goes out to them. And the, the parent's heart bleeds love and affection and the desire to help that child. That's the heart of God for sinners like me, for sinners like us. Do you see how this completely changes your understanding of what religion, what religion is about? If, if you are a religious person um, who understands the heart of God, this, this means you no longer exclude and feel superior to other people. Instead, you say, like Martin Luther said on, on uh, his deathbed, um, uh, basically, if there's one lesson he learned, Uh, over the course of his life, he summed it all up uh, and he said, like, uh, we are all beggars. Like, he summed up his life in terms of saying, we are all beggars. And the idea is, God is the one who we have, we we are totally helpless and dependent. We can't provide for ourselves. We are beggars, and we beg God 
for what we need. We need forgiveness. We need reconciliation with God. We need the power to uh, break the chains of our sin and be able to live in a different way. But we're beggars. We can't do it ourselves. We are so dependent on God to do that for us. But this is the heart of God. This is the heart of the shepherd to go after you, to love you, to pursue you. The Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Um, what kind of response should we have to this? Um, the first thing I would say is, like, God is so incredible that even when you do nothing, God is active. Uh, where do I get that? Two passages. There's one in Acts chapter 17, I believe, where it says, um, God is not served by human hands as though he needed anything from us. The second passage is from Ephesians 3 where it says, God is able to do far more than all we could ask or think. When you do nothing, God is still pursuing people. If everyone in our church stopped all of the programs and we did absolutely nothing, that would not foil the plan of God to evangelize the world because God doesn't need us to do anything for him. However, and, and the, the reason I say that is because there's a huge difference between being a functional atheist and a, like professing atheist, right? There are many people who are Christian who think the only thing that God does is what I do. Do you know what I mean? But if God is seeking and saving the lost, then it basically means rather than all the pressure being on me to evangelize everyone, to change everyone, to influence everyone, to get people to act right, all of that stuff, that's a ton of pressure. And you're not God. But God is God. And God is constantly seeking to save the lost. And so even as a pastor, I see this all the time, where it's like, like I cannot put too much pressure on myself to create outcomes that I can't control. How can I create a person who is joyful in Christ? How do you do that? What do you do to force someone to be grateful to God and rejoice in Jesus Christ? I don't know. I can't do it. So instead, I can say, like, I can partner with God and I, I become really humble. In John 15, it says, apart from me, I, you can do nothing. Where I can do nothing apart from God. I can only partner with what God is already doing in seeking and saving the lost. And so when you understand God's heart of love to go after lost people, you become a person who pursues people. But you do it very gently because you know that you're partnering with God and you have a sense of God leading you to do it. What does this look like? Um, I've had multiple instances in the last, uh, probably in the last three or four months where over the course of talking to God and reading and meditating with God, I felt on my heart God say, pray for this person. And this is kind of what it looks like to be a, be a pastor, but it's what it looks like to be a Christian. God, send, God prompts me to pray for certain people, and I pray for them, and then I think, I wonder how they're doing. You know, these are people I haven't seen for a while, haven't talked to for a while, and then I, I message them like, you know, what's up, how are you doing? And what's really creepy is, there, there have been so many times where because I was prompted to pray for this person, because I prayed for them, and because I reached out to them, I have these amazing conversations where they really share a deep area that they've been struggling. 
or they really share a deep area that they're so joyful in what God has been doing. And so do you see, do you see the difference? On one hand, I could go to my Facebook contact list and message every single person mechanically and say, how are you doing? You should rejoice in God. How are you doing? Well, how's your spiritual life? You should rejoice in God. And then there's another way of kind of humbly saying, God, who do you want me to pray for? How are you leading me to care for the people in my life and around me? And that is partnering with God and saying, God, you are taking the lead and initiative, and I'm going to serve you by following what you're doing. The way it feels to the people who I reach out to is really different because it does not feel good when someone is trying to pressure you into doing something. But my heart, when, when God prompts me to pray for this person and reach out to them, it's because I actually care. I, I really do. I really do care. And it's not, I don't want to like, you, you know what I mean, right? This is the heart of God. So when you understand how God is so compassionate and he pursues the lost, um, it takes the pressure off of you because God is always active when we do nothing. But then if he's always active, then as you become increasingly sensitive to what God is leading you to do day by day, you become a person who reaches out. And so I remember there's this one story that always gets me. Um, there was a former church member um, a long time ago. He was really struggling with depression in high school. And no one, he would just lock himself in his room and no one would come. Like basically, there were a lot of people who were trying to get him to like come out and like, you know, trying to help him. Go, you can go to therapy, all this stuff, but nothing was working. And so one day, our old pastor, Fred Mock, he just went to that person's door and he just stood there for, for half an hour and was knocking and was seeking this guy who was really depressed. And that completely changed that guy's life. And he'll say that. Fred Mock was living out God's heart for seeking and saving the lost by going after that lost person and attempting to share the love of God with them. But the really crazy thing is it's not always that dramatic and it's not always that quick because sometimes what it means to seek and save the lost is to pray for a decade, literally a decade of prayer. And I've seen this happen. I remember having a prayer meeting with some elders, with like the elders in our church um, about this per another person who was depressed and struggling and shut in. And it took, I think, either seven or eight years before that person ever showed up in our doors. It was seven or eight years of many people praying for that person because we can't force them to do anything. We can't make them respond to anything. We can't control them. We can't. But our prayers partnering with God in what he does to seek and save the lost. That is our hope. That is the only hope that we have for broken and captive people to be transformed and healed and set free. It's not how smart I am. It's not the techniques we use. It's not parenting workshops. It's really not. It's the power of God. It's the heart of God. Understanding the grace of God for you changes the way you live, changes the way you view sinners. I am a sinner desperately in need of grace. I'm a beggar. I need God to save me and find me. And then once I've been found, I can become part of God's uh, mission to seek and save lost people. Okay? Um, we're sheep desperately in need of a savior, but Jesus is so different. He's so much more compassionate and gentle than we could imagine. In our worst moments, where you feel most ashamed and most powerless and helpless, where do you think Jesus is? Is Jesus like turning his nose up at you 
and saying, you're so messed up. You're so worthless. I could never love you. If you believe this truth, that is the very moment where God is most reaching out to you, where he is most like he has the most compassion and mercy and gentle uh, forgiveness for you. In that moment, you feel the most ashamed. All you have to do is say, God, I am a sheep. Can you shepherd me? Can you help me? Can you forgive me? That's the heart of God for you. Do you know that? Have you responded with repentance to this incredible, loving, gentle, gracious God? Um, I really pray that you would because he is so good and he is so worth following and knowing. Let's pray. Dear Lord, um, I pray that as we gather together, your grace and what Jesus did on the cross, the way you feel about us, the way you seek after us would be the most important thing, uh, the thing that we keep on coming back to, how amazing you are in seeking us as we are lost. And so I pray, Lord, for people who might have been straying from you in different ways. Um, I thank you that you are seeking them and that you are using your word to call them to repentance. I pray we would be able to faithfully confess our sins and turn back to you and understand the joy in heaven at our repentance. And so I pray, Lord, for specific people in this group um, that they would be able to confess their sins that they've been struggling with, and they would experience your joy and delight, uh, the celebration and party in heaven at their repentance. I pray for those who have never known you, um, who have a conception of you that comes from um, uh, you know, our, our tendency towards self-righteousness and legalism. Um, I pray, Lord, you would break them free of that lie about you, and you would really be impressing on them how different you are than they conceive, um, and that they would come to know you and trust you. Um, and then finally, I pray, Lord, and God, you are so gracious with us. You don't need us to do anything, but I pray, Father, that um, you would grow our hearts for lost people, for our neighbors, for our friends, for our family, um, for people all over the world who desperately need a shepherd, who are harassed and helpless without you and hopeless. And I pray, Lord, you would use us so powerfully um, to share your good news and bring people into a saving relationship with you and that we would be able to all celebrate together as many more people become baptized, as many more people become your disciples and are healed and set free. Um, I pray you would give us discernment in how to partner with you. You would give us your gentleness and persistence in seeking to save people um, and that we would follow your lead in everything uh, we do. Um, I thank you for how you pursue us and love us. I thank you that you loved us so much that you sent your son to die for us um, so that we could become reconciled to you and experience the goodness of um, being under grace. We love you so much and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.